All right. Well, last week we found ourselves looking at Paul and his fifth time having to defend his faith uh, in the public forum. So if you want to turn to page 246 in the Bible in front of you, you're going to be in Acts chapter 27 today. Uh, you'll notice there's only one chapter after this one, and we're done with the book of Acts. We're going to wrap that up next week. We spent a considerable amount of time in it on purpose because uh, it's foundational to understand the movement of the gospel throughout the history of the, Old, of the New Testament and the letters that are being written and the instruction of the church if you don't grapple with the hard truth of Acts and to watch this thing get birthed and move and how God did this, how he established it. And so uh, that's why we've done this. And we finish up next week with uh, chapter 28. But today we're going to be in 27. And in 26, 25 and 26, we saw that there were no criminal charges brought against Paul. Those parts were dropped. But he was basically being charged with being uh, a religious insurrectionist. You know, this person who just caused trouble and was getting groups of people to not line up with the established religious system of the day. And it was even more damaging because this was a religious system that Paul was raised in and was prominently placed in and built up in and into one of their top tier leaders until he met Jesus. So we hear, G, we hear him give his whole testimony. Uh, we see him claim his Roman citizenship and that, that entitles him to a trial before Caesar. But you can't just go from one small level up to Caesar, you have to build up to that, and that's what is happening in Paul's story. So last week, he's before King Agrippa, and uh, the main clerk for the Roman government, his name is Festus, and he says, listen, we need to cross all the boxes here before he stands before Caesar. So Paul stands before a Jewish king named King Agrippa, who was a Jewish historian, would have understood the law of the Jewish people, would have understood the, the prophecy leading up to a Messiah. The big defining point in history is that Paul believes that Jesus was the Messiah and the Jewish establishment of the day, to this day actually, don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They're still waiting for the Messiah. And so that's the tension point. We put Jesus to death and... Jesus was the Messiah. No, we're still waiting for our Messiah. No, Jesus is the Messiah. That's the tension point. And so that, that is just continuing to echo through the annals of history. And King Agrippa is a Jewish historian who happens to be in a, basically he's a showpiece king. He doesn't have any authority. He, he's, he's sitting in a, a place of, of power, but he's basically has influence and he has the, you know, he's kind of like I said last week, like the, the, the Queen of England. There's not any power left to the position, but the prominence still is held. And so basically King Agrippa is being used as someone that's going to sign off this box for Festus before Paul gets put before Caesar. And at the end, King Agrippa hears truth for I don't know how many times. And he looks at Paul and says, do you think in this amount of time you've been able to lay this out for me, that you're going to get me to convert to be a Christian? 
If you read between the lines, what King Agrippa is saying is, you think that you're going to be able to, in one afternoon, convince me that Jesus is better than all the riches my kingdom affords me, my position affords me. You're saying that Jesus is better than that. There's a part of Agrippa that probably believes that. Agrippa is frustrated at the end. He says, if this guy wouldn't have appealed to Caesar, he could be set free by now. He didn't do anything wrong. And that's where we end chapter 26 with the realization that it doesn't matter how many times we hover around truth. And like Dusty said earlier, it doesn't matter how much truth we know in our heads. If this doesn't make a connection to our hearts and to our understanding of our own depravity, it will just be knowledge. Knowledge in and of itself does not transform lives. King Agrippa is a sad testimony to that. So where we pick up the story today is in chapter 27, and we see that Paul starts the trip to Rome. I want to show you a map on the screen so you can get an idea of what this looked like. If you see down at the bottom where it says Caesarea Maritima, that would have been the port of Caesarea. You see what I'm talking about? I don't have a laser pointer. If I did, it probably wouldn't. I would only be able to get to one or the other. Uh, so uh, see where it says Sidon? Okay, so this is where Paul's journey really gets started on his way to Rome. And if you follow the arrows, you can see it wasn't a direct trip. And we're going to get into that. Why? So Eric, you can just leave that on the screen. We'll be referencing it a couple times here. But let's look at verses 1 through 12 of chapter 27. I think that lays a great groundwork. Luke is going to give us more details of this than he does most other events. And I think it's important for us to see them. So verses 1 through 12, again, we're on page 246. We're using the Bible in front of you. (coughs) Excuse me. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adoramitium, I tried, I practiced that word 17 times this week. You see it, you know what I mean. Which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Now listen, that's, I'm going to stop there. Look at Sidon on the map. Sidon is obviously north of Jerusalem, and Paul has... Wow, look at that, guys. <laughs> Dusty, Dusty likes all these little tools. Uh, so the, the, the leader of this, the centurion that's assigned to keep guard on Paul, actually shows mercy on him, and somehow, through conversation, I'm guessing, learns that Paul has friends and resources available to him in Sidon, so he frees him up to go. So Paul, being an honorable prisoner, obviously, last week we ended with the question, we're going to look at it again today, but the question we looked at last week was we asked, does your life make a compelling case for the gospel? And it's a moment like this that tells us that Paul's character did, that that Paul said, I will stand before Caesar for my trial, and this centurion trusted that if I let Paul go, he's going to come back. And Paul does. He goes into Sidon, and he gets... gets, uh, uh, his friends, to, and they cared for him. Picking up at verse 4. And putting out the sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. 
And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. All right. You see where Myra is? Okay, there's the island of Cyprus. It has a little red dot on it. Myra is underlined now. Okay, this is good. This is live teaching. This is good. So where they had a trouble getting to is they had to go north. They're following the coast, and they're doing that on purpose because they're in a small coastal ship. So this ship is relatively small. It's made for transporting people, and I'm going to get into the time of year here in a minute. But So they're traveling, and it says the winds were against us. So this is not a trip that is easily made at the time of year they're doing it. So they're following the coast best they can. This trip normally would have followed the coast up on along Antioch, and then, but, but the winds were against them and pushing them out. So they actually are closer to the island of Cyprus than they would probably have liked to have been. They circle around Cyprus because the currents are better, and they end up working their way to Myra, which is a port city. And that's where the story changes a bit, and we're going to pick up there at verse 6. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmoni. Coasting along it was, it, with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and of the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Okay, you see Phoenix on the map? Eric, can you see that? Phoenix was a, a major port at this time of year because it had a north and a south end. So depending on the weather, you could decide where to dock. But they wanted to get there. That was their goal. There's a few highlights. Uh, verse 9 tells us that this is October. When it says in verse 9 that uh, much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, what it's referring to is the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, and that is a festival that happens in what we call October. It's that time of year. Now, they might not have called it October, but it doesn't change the weather cycle. would have been bad for sailing in October. Now, if you made a grain run, if you made a grain run from Alexandria to Rome in October, you got paid more for it because it was dangerous sailing and there was probably a shortened supply. So this is an ambitious pilot, an ambitious captain who wants to get where he's going. A centurion is trusting him. There's bad weather because if you know, the cyclone season in that section of the, of the world happens in the fall and into the winter. So what they're up against is bad weather, bad currents, and not ideal situations. Now, they started off with this small ship to hug the coast, and the small ship was cut in such a way that it could go through the waves easier, that it could handle the storm easier. And, but it wasn't fast enough, it wasn't swift enough, and so, <coughs> pardon me, the centurion that's guarding them, Julius, decides that he's going to get a better ship, a more roomy 
spot and have a better opportunity to get to Rome. And that's whenever he, in verse 6, switches out to this other ship. This is a grain ship. It's hauling grain to Rome. If you fast forward to verse 37, it tells us there were 276 people on this boat. 276 people on board this ship. Now, a grain ship in October is a hard sell for a, for a, a pilot unless you're going to make a lot of money. The, the captain of this ship would have uh, been taken on a lot of duress. Now, if you read through, we're going to whenever we get to that, but I'm going to tell you now because I think it's going to help set the tone for the rest of this. They would have had uh, sections of the ship underneath that were compartments for grain. And they would have filled it with grain, and grain is heavy. And that grain would have made the ship, it would have, the trim would have been down closer to the surface of the water. You've got to keep grain dry because if it gets wet, it expands. And if grain on a ship expands too much, it gets too heavy, and it actually will crack the boards, and the boat will just sink itself because it takes on too much weight. Rarely did grain runs happen in this time of year. For that very reason, they waited for calmer waters where they could make the trip in timely fashion. But this is pushing them out. Whenever they get to Salmoni, they they try to get down to Phoenix and they have to stop in Fair Havens, right? So that's that's where we've left off here. Paul has stood in front of them and he has said, this is a bad idea. I fear that we are headed in a bad direction here. This is not wise. And we see some bad decisions that we don't want to model. The first bad decision that we see that we don't want to model is this, listening to quote-unquote expert advice rather than godly advice. Listening to expert advice rather than godly advice. Julius wanted facts. He wanted figures. He wanted experience. That's what he was looking for. So whenever Paul says what he says in verse 10, I perceive that the voyage will be with with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot, to the owner of the ship, than what Paul said. He wanted facts, he wanted figures, he wanted experience. Paul was pointing toward prayer. He was pointing toward seeking to know what God wanted. He was trying to be wise with everybody on board. But the man who was able to make the decision listened to the expert advice rather than the godly advice. The second thing that we see bad decision that's modeled here is in verse 12. In verse 12 it says, because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out the sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. So verse 12 tells us the second bad decision and it was listening to the majority. Now in the Bible, the majority vote usually isn't the best one to listen to. In biblical terms, listening to the majority opinion, getting what the majority thinks is best, is rarely the right way to go. The Israelites, the majority of the Israelites, wanted to go back into slavery. 
the majority of the children of God wanted an earthly king instead of God, even though they were told how badly it would go. The majority wanted to stone the woman caught in adultery. <coughs> Excuse me. The majority voted to crucify Jesus. So in, the, in the midst of the storm, going with the majority opinion is rarely the best voice. This is the advice we get today in our society. Listen to your heart, right? Just let your heart be your guide, right? Didn't Jiminy Cricket sing that song? Let your heart be your guide. That's terrible advice. That's terrible advice. Now, when it says let your heart be your guide, that's talking about the center of your emotions. Thank you, Deb. It's talking about the center of our emotions, that, that our emotions come out of our heart. The, not the physical heart, like, I'm just going to listen to it. I'm just going to do what it says. It's talking about like the seat of our emotions. Now, we are all emotional beings. Some of us have different emotions that rise to service more than others. But let me just ask a, a, a question. Can you trust your emotions? When you are in an emotionally charged state, is that the best opportunity for you to be trusted? To be most rational? To be most trusting? to be most filled with faith. So here we are in the midst of a storm, and it says that the majority decided to put out to sea. Now Luke is telling us, obviously, that he's not part of the majority opinion here because of how he's wording it. He wants to make it abundantly clear without explicitly saying it. But he says things like, uh, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix. That doesn't sound like a guy that had his hand up whenever they took the vote. So this, the first bad decision that we see, the first bad decision that we see is that they were listening to expert advice rather than godly advice. The second one is that they're listening to the majority. The crowd got the win. Now let's look at verse 13 through 20 before we look at some more of their bad decisions and then we can look at Paul for a minute before we close it up. Verses 13 through 20. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the nor'easter struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught, and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Now, bad decision number three, taking matters into our own hands. 
They didn't listen to the counsel that they got. They listened to the majority opinion, and now they're in a bad way, and they decide they're going to double down and take opportunity to put all this in their own hands. They're going to fix this thing. Look at what they do. In verse 16, they secure the boat. Now, when that, what that means is the lifeboat they would have towed behind them. If a bad storm comes up and picks up the lifeboat, it's going to toss it around. And if the lifeboat gets a current underneath it and pushes it forward, it's going to pierce through the side of the boat. So whenever the storm came, one of the first things that sailors were trained to do is to pull the lifeboat up and not tow it behind them. Because it was easier to pull the weight than it was to carry the weight. So they were probably maxed out on weight anyway on the boat. They just took on a whole bunch of prisoners to Rome which they probably get paid handsomely for. So the first thing you do is pull up the boat. In verse 17, it says that they bound the ship. What that means is that they, they, uh, they use supports to undergird the ship. They essentially take ropes and they go around the whole boat and tie it tight to try to keep the planks from expanding in the midst of the storm. When it says nor'easter or tempestuous storm, it's basically a hurricane or a cyclone that they're in. This is going on for days, by the way. When you look at verse 19, or I mean, uh, verse 20, when this had gone on for many days, they hadn't seen the sun or stars for many days. At this point in time, there was no such thing as a compass. They were following the stars to guide them on their trip. And now they're a couple days into this journey and they can't see the sky through the storm. So they're doing everything they can do. Verse 18, they throw out all the extra cargo. In verse 19, they take the tackle, essentially stuff that they need for the journey at this point, and they throw it overboard. And what's the result of all of their hard work? The end of verse 20 tells us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Now, please don't hear me say that sometimes a sticky situation or a storm that we're in doesn't require some amount of work on our part. That's not what I'm saying. These sailors were doing what they were told. They were doing what they were trained to do in a situation like this. But they didn't have to be in this situation. They didn't have to be here. But their default was to fall on what they knew. There's nothing faith. There's nothing about faith that's driving their decision-making here. And there's a lot we can take from that. So now they've done all they can do. And at the end of that, all they've done is abandon their hope of being saved. You see where they're at now? If you see where Fair Havens is, the, the, the box says ship lost in the storm. So they're in the Mediterranean Sea, floating between Malta, which is below Sicily, and Phoenix is where they hoped to go. So they're in Fair Havens. All they wanted to do was round the island of Crete, get up to Phoenix, and they were going to dock there for the winter. And instead, this storm kicks in, and they end up floating in the Mediterranean Sea for days in the midst of a hurricane, weighed down with all of the grain. Let's pick up at verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, 
You should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. This is whenever we see Paul's flesh come out a little bit because Paul's saying, I told you so. If you guys would have just listened to me, we wouldn't be in this mess. Verse 22. Yet, now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the Lord to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on some island. Look at Paul's contrasting behavior here. Now, like I said, Paul's not Jesus. Paul's not perfect. Paul sins throughout his missionary life, just so you know. We don't get a whole lot of record of it. But Paul is still a human being. Now, we tend to put Paul and Jesus in the same conversation sometimes. Like when we see Paul say something like this, it shocks us. It amazes us that how could someone like Paul be arrogant or whatever? He was still a human being. Now, Paul's in the middle of this storm too, by the way. Emotions are extremely high and hope has been abandoned. That's the assessment that Luke gave us. And so when Paul speaks into this, he says, man, you should have listened to me. We should have never left Crete. Look at all the injury and loss we already have. I told you this would happen, essentially. Regardless, guys, regardless, I believe in God. And he met with me last night. And he assured me that we will survive this. The boat will not, but we will. We will. Paul's behavior is such a contrasting difference to the behavior of the other men on the ship. Their goal was to save their lives, however, by whatever means possible. Their goal was to make as much money on this run as possible because they should have never made this run in the first place. The centurion should have never switched over to this boat in the first place. You could track this colossally bad decisions the whole way back to the beginning of this. And Paul's standing in that and he says, we need to make sure that we spend time to seek God even in the midst of turmoil. Can you imagine? I don't know what this looked like. This is one of those moments where Luke doesn't give us explicit detail. All we know is that the, the night Paul speaks in verse 23, an angel of God came to him and spoke to him and comforted him. Now, we've seen Jesus step into stormy situations and bring peace before. <coughs> but he does this for Paul again. He steps in and he gives Paul words of comfort and he tells him that you do not need to be afraid. You must stand before Caesar. He's just reminding Paul of something. If you remember from a couple chapters ago, this is something that Paul hung his hat on once already, that this, nothing bad is going to happen to me because I've already been promised that I will stand before Caesar in Rome. And I'm not there yet. 
which means I can't die. Not here, not like this. I'll probably die in Rome, but I got to get there first. So Paul doesn't just say, guys, it's fine. I'm going to survive this. He says, the angel of the Lord told me specifically the God that I love, the God that I trust, the God that I follow, the God that I have faith in. He told me that not just me, but all of us will survive this. The boat will not, but we will. We need to run aground on some island. That's essentially what was told to him. What was told to him was that the boat will run aground somewhere and then you guys will all survive. If you look down into verse 33, we're going to skip ahead a little bit and just jump around a tad. In verse 33, we find out that they were on there for about 14 days before Paul says, today is the 14th day you have continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. When he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. And that's where verse 37 tells us, we were, all, we were in all 276 persons in the ship. When they'd eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. At this point, they realize they've got to get more weight off the ship, and the wheat had probably already expanded, and now they were dumping that off of the ship too. Verse 39, it tells us that they didn't recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and let them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail in the wind. They made for the beach, but striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. Exactly what was told would happen, right, at Malta. They run the ship aground on a coral reef. And it says in verse 44, the rest on planks, they made their way towards land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. All 276 people. Now life is hard sometimes. I think of people's situations that I know personally and it doesn't seem fair and it doesn't seem right and it probably seems like what, what's happening in the shipwreck. And the thing that, that, that I marvel at is Paul doesn't ever seem to lose his mind here. Maybe he did, we don't have record of it, but what we know is what we have. I mean, what we have is what we know. We know that Paul had this faith that God was going to deliver him from this mess. And a mess it was. That he had faith that even though it didn't look good, that it looked bleak, we were going to survive this. I, was going to, I am going to get where God has promised I will get. I am going to be faithful to God because he has always been faithful to me. And this is not where God said I would end up. So therefore, this, has, this cannot be my end. It can be terrible, it can be scary, it can be hard, it can be cold, but it's not the end. Because this doesn't match up with what God said it would look like or where it would be. 
And God did exactly what God said he would do. He allowed everyone to survive. It led me to, in the message version, message uh, version of the Bible, it's a paraphrase of the Bible. In Proverbs 3, 6, and 7, Eugene Peterson says this, Listen for God's voice in everything you do, everywhere you go. He's the one who will keep you on track. Don't assume that you know it all. Run to God. Run from evil. And I thought to myself, how often do I just do my own thing? How often do I ask for answers, get a piece, and then just run with that and do my own thing anyway? Because God gave me a piece of hope. It goes back to the days whenever I would just do something bad, and if I didn't get caught, I'd just continue doing something bad because, well, nobody saw me. I didn't get caught. I didn't get in any trouble, so I'm good. And that's sort of the mindset that we can camp out on, right? That I know I'm in this downward spiral of sin. I know my life doesn't completely honor God. I know that I claim to be a Christian with my mouth and in some of my decisions, but not holistically. I know that's true of me, but it hasn't caught up with me yet, and it's not that bad. And all of a sudden, things just like a shipwreck come around us, and then we're tempted to do one of two things. Not tempted. We're tempted to do one thing. We can choose to do the other. Choosing the other means that we're going to look to a loving God who has truth for us, and we're going to trust Him, and we're going to repent, and we're going to move towards Him. Or we're going to shake our fist at God. We're going to claim that we took the moral high road, that we were good people, and this kind of stuff shouldn't happen to good people, God. I'm a nice person. I try to be a good person. That's the lingo of our day. And it tends to be good enough. And if we're good enough, we're good. We're a society that's just okay with good enough until we're not okay with good enough. And then we redefine what we think we want over and over and over and over again. What I admire most about Paul is he never did that. He never did that. Scripture tells us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And Paul did that. Like I said, he wasn't perfect. But he did that. He was willing to go where nobody else was going. He was willing to say what seemed like nobody else was saying. And he was willing to do it at the cost of his own life. If that ship went down and he died, he would have been okay with that. What he wasn't okay with is not trusting that God said that wasn't where he was going to die. He wasn't okay with giving over to despair because he knew God would get him out of it. Now, did that make it easy? Did God just send in a, a rescue helicopter to pluck him out and take him on a nice flight? No, you'll notice that he went down in Malta, had to swim to Sicily, and then guess what he had to get back on to get into Rome? Another boat. 
as a prisoner. This wasn't like it was going to be an easy thing. I don't know why we have ourselves convinced that faith is easy. I don't know why we have ourselves convinced that following Jesus is easy. I don't know why we have ourselves convinced that if things get hard, that means God doesn't love us. All you have to do is watch and see what his own son had to endure on our behalf. And you'll know that living in this world sometimes just plain stinks. But our circumstances do not change the heart of God. Our decisions don't change the love of God. I'm going to close with a verse that we looked at last week. I think it's important for us to refocus our eyes on it. It's 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles aliens and strangers. We've talked about this before. I'm going to close on this. When we come to know Christ, we receive this amazing gift of grace. Our citizenship changes. We become citizens of heaven, not just citizens of heaven, but rightful heirs adopted into the family of God. And then Paul tells us that we are his ambassadors as though he were making his appeal to humanity through us. That the gospel is going to make its way out into other people's lives and the glory of Jesus is going to redeem other people because of you. That the life-saving message of the cross resides in you if you are redeemed. That you are an ambassador of Christ as though he were making his appeal to humanity through you. Peter expresses the same thing here when he says, I urge you, he doesn't say like aliens and strangers, as. He identifies us as the aliens and strangers. He identifies us as the sojourners and exiles. He identifies us as the refugees. We, as followers of Christ, are now citizens of another place placed here for one purpose, to make much of Jesus. Paul got it. And there was very little of his experience following Jesus that wasn't extremely difficult. To the day, they killed him for it. Paul's story is not one on earthly terms that would be a happy ending. There's not many moments in Paul's journey where you would look at it and say, man, I'd love to be Paul. He had it so easy. But he understood who Jesus was and he understood that he was an alien, a stranger, an ambassador, living for a higher purpose, living for another kingdom 
And someday he was going to get to spend his eternity in that kingdom. We have a very real enemy, and he seeks to destroy you. Sometimes he's going to destroy you with pain and shipwrecks, and sometimes he's going to destroy you with comfort and getting exactly what you think you wanted in the first place. And all that stuff can just distract us from understanding why we're here in the first place. Paul understood why he was here. To make much of Jesus. I would just ask, do we know that too? Because this we know. God will make the enemy run. And then he'll make the victory come. God, thank you that we get to follow you. That we get to know you. That we have this gift of faith afforded to us. God, encourage us this morning with the truth that, that your word holds true, that, that we, we get to live in the, in the amazing light of eternity, that, that this amazing gift of grace is afforded to us, that we're not just people aimlessly walking this earth, that coming here in and of itself does nothing for us. Your grace through faith does everything. God, thank you for your enduring love for us. Thank you for the midst of when this world doesn't seem like it's cooperating with our plans, that you're, you're still rock solid, that our ways are not your ways. So make us obedient to your call. Renew us, build us up. Give us courage, boldness, and strength. Or allow us the privilege and the honor to just know you and to follow you, to trust you. When we say this we know, you will make the enemy run. You will make the victory come.